Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and how different people define happiness and success. All the big questions for work and life. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I'm talking to a very special person, N.K. Chowdhury. He's the founder of Jaipur Rugs, the first Indian guest that I've had on the show and honestly one of the most inspiring leaders I've ever come across. So really, really excited to have him on the show, more of which in a moment. So I hope you're okay. I hope you're well. It feels like we're, yeah, like lockdown again is brewing. If you're listening to this in the north of England and lots of other places, it's it's already here. And um, yeah, I can kind of feel there's a bit of an anxiety kind of driving uh, people's thought processes at the moment as people think about strapping in for what could be a very long, cold, stressful winter on lots of uh, different fronts. So hope you're okay and surviving that sort of imminent uh, sense of doom that seems to be going around at the moment. Um, If we do end up on lockdown for winter, then here's a lovely segue. Uh, then there are some spaces still available for my six weeks to ninja uh, online evening course. So it starts in November. Um, if you go to graymalcott.com, you'll see a pop up for that. And uh, also just, oh, there you go. I'm a little pop up on my screen right now. Uh, graymalcott.com forward slash six weeks will get you directly to that page as well. Um, and yeah, if you want to sign up for that, it's going to be a deliberately quite small little group. So there's going to be no more than 30 people. And I'm going to be walking people through all the stuff from uh, my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And also spending a lot of time with you guys on implementing it all as well. So we'll have a WhatsApp group for accountability through the weeks and making sure that people actually do the stuff that they are uh, resolving to do as part of the program. So if you're interested in that, six weeks in ninja, just go to graymalcott.com and you find out more there. So let's get into this week's episode. So NK Chowdhury, I met back in 2012. I was on a study program called Journeys for Change, uh, touring around India and talking to leaders and particularly social entre- entrepreneurs. Um, NK Chowdhury is the founder of Jaipur Rugs, huge exporter of very high-end, beautiful luxury rugs. And his founder story is absolutely fascinating. We talk about it a bit during the episode. Basically, he kind of defied his parents and lots of other people in his life and worked across the caste system. So uh, in India, there are various different castes of people, and there are very set expectations for what those people do, who they mix with and so on. And the people who are deemed to be at the bottom of society um, used to be referred to, and I think in some places still are, as the untouchables. And uh, Mr. Chowdhury made a very deliberate decision to work with those people to help them to install weaving looms uh, where they were so that they didn't have to travel and be exploited going to you know, factories working 18 hour, day, hour, hour days and they could basically work flexibly. Um, and we toured around a few of the facilities of Jaipur Rugs. It's, um, yeah, we toured around a few different villages and it's just absolutely remarkable what he has uh, built and his 
eloquence and just presence as a leader are just phenomenal. Um, it's fair to say that English is not his first language, so this is a slightly difficult listen. You might find it just takes a few minutes to just kind of adjust to uh, some of the pronunciations and um, and and to really kind of ho- hook into this. But honestly, I would say just listen to it twice because he is so inspiring. And uh, I'm going to be doing some writing over the next uh, few months, particularly around heart in business and you know kindness and leadership and and a few topics around that and it's fair to say Mr Chowdhury is very high up my list of people to feature as a case study as part of this um so super inspiring um we reconnected a few months ago and I said I'd love you to come on and do the podcast and um he said yes so I'm just delighted and thrilled to have him on so let's get into it here's my conversation with Mr NK Chowdhury I'm here with NK Chowdhury. Um, you're uh, based in India in Jaipur. So first thing to say is it's um, early afternoon here, late afternoon there. So good afternoon, Mr. Chowdhury. Good afternoon. Um, it's just such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And just before we press record there, we were talking about how uh, I was talking about the the government lockdown um, and guidelines about home working and not commuting to offices. And you're saying that you actually live on in the same compound as as where you work as well. So that that makes two of us. So let's just start by: Do you want to just describe uh, where you live and what your what your setup is around life and work? Uh, I I I live in the same campus of my office. And so it is much easier, easier for me to take the take my lunch hot at the at the home, and because people are not so many people are not coming to the office, so I spend my fifty sixty percent of time at the home, and I only come to the office when I when I need, and in last four four months I think. It is. It was totally a different journey. Very, very comfortable. Yeah. And very joyful. Yeah. And so, and what's changed through the the current COVID situation, and and how is that? Um, like, what's happening with with COVID in India right now? Things are getting worse and worse day by day. After the opening of the of the lockdown, and government is trying very, very hard. But still, it is very, very difficult to prevent the COVID. Yeah, and I suppose also in India you have some very densely populated cities as well, right? So you know Delhi and Mumbai, and um, I've been spent a little bit of time in your part of the world too, in Rajasthan and Jaipur and places. Um, but yeah, you have a lot of people in small spaces, which must also make it quite difficult to to contain something like this. Yes. You are right. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about your journey then with Jaipur Rugs. Um, it, honestly, I, I remember coming to visit you in, I think it was back in 2012. Um, and just coming away from that visit, just so inspired by by you and the work that you'd done. And what's quite interesting, we were just talking there about how your house is in the same compound as um, the offices. And that's kind of how you started, right? So you getting into 
the business of hand-woven rugs, right. the first looms that you had were were in your house. So you've always been someone who's who's worked from home and uh, and had and sort of combined work and home in in the same location, right? Right. So should I share my journey? Yeah. After passing my graduation exam, I started my career selling shoes from a little shop, which my father has started. I also got a permanent job in a nationalized bank. I declined the offer as I wanted to do something of my own. And there was very little room to grow at the shop on which I was working. So then I tried to find out my passion, who am I, what would I like to do. And I found that I'm a people person and I love nature. So at that time I realized that there were very less weavers in India, but the export demand of carpets was very good. So I thought I, I must start this business because I will be able to go to different villages and I will be able to work the people who is rejected by the society, by their own, own family members. So 42 years ago, I took a loan of $200 from my father, bought two looms and one old cycle and I started this carpet business. After I started this business, I was in so much love with weaving and the weavers that you, I used to take my lunch with the weavers and I, I was spending all my time with the weavers. But the first challenge which came at the time is from my own family members. In those days, rug weavers belonged to the untouchable class and were not given the same same social standing as others. So given the strong class system in India, interaction was not possible. So I realized that time that how my family members, my neighbors, friends say them they are the untouchable. How we can judge a person by the caste? And at that time I realized the hypocrisy in the society People are something else at their home. They are something else in the office. They are something else when they are alone. And then I was a contractor manufacturer for nine, nine years and spread my business in and around my village. And after nine years, I came to Jaipur to start my own export with my brother. I stayed for three years in Jaipur, but at that time I realized the carpet have a huge demand. So to satisfy the demand, I went to Gujarat to a tribal area. The government of Gujarat was trying to develop that area because there was very huge unemployment. And on the very first day when I was there, the local people told me, if you go to this area, People can beat you, people can kill you. They are the tribal people and they are not very welcoming to the outsider. So this is in Gujarat, right? Yes, Gujarat. Yes, yes, yes. And how far is that from Jaipur, just for people that, that, that don't know uh, the geography of India, which I have to say, I don't know that well either. So It is 800 kilometers from Jaipur. 
800 kilometers. Okay. So, so people told me that uh, you should not work in this area because they are not very tribes are not very welcoming for the outsider. Mm. So I have got an English friend who lives in London. His name is Ayla Koper, and he is no, known for writing the books about the painted walls of the Sekhawati. So when whenever we have some problem, we try to get his advice. So I asked him about should I work in this with the tribal people or not. He suggested me that they are the most innocent people in India. Hmm. The people outside people they exploited them very badly, so they don't trust them. So if you deal with them with love, compassion, and empathy, that will be your biggest loyal force. So after taking his advice. I went to that tribal area, stayed for nine years, and where I have a opportunity to train fifteen thousand tribal men and women in the art of rug weaving, and within a within three years, they started treating me as their guide and their mentor. When I was going to the villages. their parents were waiting me standing outside their home at that time i have got three daughters and in our society if a woman have got first three daughters then the people in the house think that something there is something wrong so my wife has always complaining me that family members are seeing me as the inferiority then i ask my friend what is the solution of this problem and my english friend ayla koper replied me that in your society you differentiate between the boys and girls so boys get spoiled and girls don't progress so much and you are liberal ki that you got the first three daughters because women are more receptive and more efficient so by taking his advice me and my wife took them better than the boys and went them to study in in america and when they were going to study in america i told them i enjoyed weaving and i may i may weaver so you are going to study in america as a daughter daughter of the weaver and never forget this because when you study you should try to observe about the lifestyle and you must take a deep interest in the american lifestyle so when you come back to india you have a better understanding of the customer needs and now you can see the impact of all my three daughters so your three daughters are now very instrumental in running jaipur rugs yeah. um it be good be good to just give the listeners a little bit of the the chronology so in terms of dates and times of putting this story in perspective so you you started with looms in your house in the 1970s is that right yes yes and then 1986 was when you started with your brother right and then jaipur rugs in its current form was 1999 right right and you were just saying before that you in Gujarat you trained 15,000 people in how to weave rugs. Right. So 
that's over how long a period of time? Because that's like that's such a <laughs> that's like a football stadium worth of people, right? So how long how long was that that training process, and um, how long would someone typically spend learning how to how to weave? I lived in Gujarat for nine years, so I trained all these people in nine years. Okay, but for a person who don't have the skill of carpet weaving, it takes one year. Okay. To be an efficient weaver. And also, you were talking about your parents there. So they, you got three daughters, and it seems like there was some expectations that if you have three daughters and no sons, then something is somehow wrong, right? That's like a that's like a cultural a cultural idea in India. Is that is that right? Yes. Yes. And so, I'm just wondering how much that was also linked to like your parents' um, expectations of what your working life would be. Because um, from what you were saying before, working with weavers, working with people who are in the terms of the caste system, the untouchables, as you mentioned before, it's like that's not seen as a thing that you should like aspire to as your job, right? So you were taking quite a big risk by by making that your career and by um, by working with um, the people that you worked with, both in terms of the caste system and then also in terms of this tribal group in Rajasthan, right? Right. So what was the what was your motivation for? Why didn't you just want to be a a banker or a civil servant or <laughs> like one of those so so called more respectable professions? Because in the initial stage, I tried very hard to introspect who am I, what is my passion. So I wanted to a, live, live a life where I could enjoy whatever I do. And I follow my passion, I follow my intuition, and I can listen, listen myself. So my criteria for the success is that to do what I like, what I enjoy, and where I can lose lose myself. Yeah. And I think that is why the business model of Jaipura became so famous, so unique. And generally, so many people ask me that, Mr. Chaudhary, how you thought about your business model? How you design your business model? And I always tell them that I never thought about business model. Still, I don't know what it means by business model. <laughs> Everything came very organically, very naturally. I always enjoyed what I did. Yeah. Um, let's um, talk about some of the the numbers in the business. So a couple of things that I I read, and you can tell me, because uh, a couple of things I read were a, a few years old as well. So I don't, I don't know whether these numbers have changed a little bit, but um, I saw written somewhere that you've got over 7,000 looms and 700 locations. Is that is that right? Yes. I mean, logistically, how do you keep track of that? <laughs> like, do you have like a huge database with um, with all with all of those different looms and what's happening on each one? And what's the what's the logistics of something like that? In each area, we have got the different branches, which supervise a special area, and we have got the branch managers, quality supervisors. So they go to the looms, and they are the local local people. And everything is provided at the weaver, weaver home. 
and we have got a very good ERP system. So we have got all the real time information in our ERP system. And as I told you that we have got very good relationship with our weavers. Mm. The whole weaver community is like our our family member. So how many weavers? How many weavers right now um, do you have working on rugs? We have connected with the forty thousand weavers. Wow! And uh, there are so many weavers who only work on the very special time. They work at their field, and when they have time, then they come to for the weaving. So it is a part-time job for them. I think one of the things that really struck me, so I came and visited your offices and then we went out and did a, a tour into one of the villages where we saw some of the, the weavers actually at work. And I think a couple of things that really struck me, one was the just the, the general uh, culture that you'd managed to create where each of those weavers felt connected to something much bigger. And I want to come back, back and talk about that um, a little bit later as well. Um, and I suppose the other thing that it really, really uh, struck me was that this is, in lots of these villages, a way to create employment, particularly for female members of the household who otherwise have childcare responsibilities and lots of other things going on. Right. Where it would be really difficult for them to uh, to entertain doing a, a more regular job or it's quite difficult to find jobs in, in a lot of um, these more remote places as well. Right. And so, like, do you see um, sort of part of your mission as about empowerment of, of people who are very poor and also empowerment of people who are women? Like, is that is that something that was... Like you said, it was organic, but that must have been part of what was driving you to uh, to expand in the way that you did and create the business model in the way that you did. I think that if you love yourself, if you trust yourself, you start overflowing and reaches to the others. <laughs> so I think my love to myself. So whenever I go to the villages, the women in the villages, they can read my face very well. <laughs> so... I think slowly, 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 the things goes to the next home, to the next, next, next village. And one day it converted into a family of the 40,000 artisans. So you have this family of 40,000 artisans all across India or all, all across northern India? Like how far are they spread? It is all across northern, northern India. Yeah. From Jaipur, the maximum distance is 1,200 kilometers. Okay. And then the rugs themselves, so you've sold rugs into 60 different countries. Yes. And what's really interesting about, about this is that you have this business model which connects some of the poorest people in the world to some of the most wealthy people in the world because right. your rugs, are they're handmade. It takes a long time to make each rug. In fact, it, it'd be good to just hear in a minute, just you could just maybe just give us an example of how long a one one rug would take and, and you know what would be involved in making that rug. But like, you know, this is a luxury purchase that someone's making. So you're you're literally connecting the poorest people in the world with the richest people in the world, which I, I suppose there, there might not be many many companies or many brands that are doing that just within one brand without a supply chain, kind of without 
hundreds of other retailers and other people involved along the way. Right. Um, should we just talk about what does it take to make one rug? So just maybe give us some of the numbers, some of the, how long it takes, just, just give us a bit of a flavor of what's involved in creating a, a Jaipur rug. As you know that CK Plath, who is the number one management guru, also did a case study on Jaipur rug business model. This is the one in um, the fortune, fortune at the bottom of the pyramid. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Uh, we'll put a link to that book in the in the show notes as well, so people can um, can check that out. Right. He said that Jaipurak supply chain is the most unique by connecting the poorest of the poorest with the richest of the richest mm. by enhancing the capability at the grassroots. So, when I started this business, I have a firm belief that there are two end of this business. One is the end consumer. And one is the weaver. And if I complete this circle, it makes the totality, it makes the whole. So I started this business with this vision. And Jaipur is only a platform to connect the end consumer with the weavers. And as far as the your question, how many time takes a carpet? Generally, it takes a 8 by 10 carpet. It also depends upon the quality, number of the nodes, but still it takes three months to six months. So three months to six months. That is that one person um, weaving full time, or they're doing that part time? No, no, not one person. On a eight feet wide carpet, there there are about generally three three women. Okay. Working on one one carpets, as I told you that. It is a part-time job, job for them. Mm. So when they are free, they, they weave on the carpet. And I also read somewhere that an average carpet that you would produce would have almost a million knots. Is that right? Ah, yes, yes. One million knots in a big, big carpet. Yeah. You're right. Wow. So it's just, yeah. And I've seen um, very many of these rugs up, up close as well. And they are just absolutely beautiful um so we'll maybe just put um some links as well um just so that if you're listening to this you can just get a sense of um what jaipur rugs are creating here um i love this phrase that you had which is we don't sell carpets we sell a family's blessing so can you just tell us a bit more about what does that mean we don't sell carpets we sell a family's blessing because i see jaipur as a platform connecting the end end consumer with the with the viewers so our tagline is that we don't sell the carpet we sell the family blessing we sell the stories we sell the experiences and our carpet is free <laughs> because i tell you one thing that raj sisodia wrote a book it published last year. The book is all about healing organization. So he writes in his book about Jaipur Rag that how Jaipur Rag business model is healing the society and by healing the society it is also healing the customer. Because the, due to Jaipur Rag business model the dignity of the weavers went many times 
and their income became two, three times more what they are earning before. Mm. And they have a better life. And now they are so open that it transforms their life. They are getting the dignity, they are getting the money. And it is a very big change in their life. And from last 10 years, I'm seeing thousands of thousands of people each year come to see them, to spend a lot of time time with them. And I have seen thousands of people coming throughout the world. They say, this is the best experience in our life. This is the best experience in our one month visit mm. in, in India. And we are getting also so many emails, communications from our end consumer that when they hear the story of the carpet they bought, how the, this carpet has transformed their life, they feel enlightened, they feel joyful. And it feels like storytelling is a very important component in the business, right? So on the one hand, yeah, you can look at it as, you know, you're producing these carpets and then you're selling these carpets. But as you're saying there before, it's like actually what you're really selling is um, this sense of healing and this connection between the weavers themselves and the end consumers themselves. Um, and you've used storytelling a lot within within Jaipur Rugs as a business. So one of the things that you did quite early on, I think, was starting to bring a lot of the the first weavers that you had into the head office to kind of see to tell them the story that actually what you're working on here is not just one carpet, but like it's part of this much bigger company and this, this much bigger picture. Right. So um, just tell us about how you went about doing that, because again, you know, this is not, there's, there's a lot of companies who um, would work in this, the same industry as you, and they would either just use, um, you know, factory manufacturing, or a lot of the jobs would be uh, quite exploitative. They'd be on very low wages, and they'd be taking those people into factories to work long hours in factories. Whereas your approach is very different because it's very person centric. Like people are weaving rugs in their own homes, and then I guess the problem with that can be that it becomes quite a almost like a remote experience so yes i'm working on this carpet and then it gets sent away but i don't get to see that bigger picture so um why did you think that was an important thing early on and um what was what were the the sort of challenges in making that happen did you find that some of the weavers were uh you know not happy about being asked to go to the head office or was it was it a difficult um sell because it would obviously have just been a very different uh, kind of thing to ask people to do than what people are maybe used to doing. I think when I started this business, I was I was a very innocent person, and uh, all the time I was talking like a child, and I was enjoying the human connections at the at the grassroots. You enjoying the what, sir? So when I was enjoying human connections, the human connections. Okay, yeah, yes. With, with my viewers. So when some customer was coming, some outsider people were coming, I was talking about my relationship with them. And slowly, slowly, I realized 
that people who come globally they realize that the story what i'm telling to them is very authentic and and driven by the innocence and 10 year before we ask all our customers people coming throughout the world that you can go to meet the viewers and went went to see the viewers they saw the more better things what we were telling to our customers to our people so i think the authenticity mm. and the innocency in business is the main part of the story story storytelling i think there's so much there's so many things in business that are quite inauthentic right so people tell lots of stories about how environmentally friendly they're going to be or about the diversity of their organization or about what the promise of their brand is and all these kind of things and often they can be quite um you know quite quite fake and quite inauthentic but i i think what's interesting is that i think you recognize quite early on that you just have this very authentic story to tell and actually that's that's a big part of the brand isn't it it's like sell, selling that to people who have the money to buy luxury goods is like a really big part of the success of Jaipur rugs right i think the because this story have the authenticity and i always talk about business is all about connecting the human beings by the by the heart mm. so i can see a very big future that end consumer interior designers architect and indian designer and our viewers they are co-creating together because when we connect with the people then the creativity of everybody in the system comes together and create something new and uh, as the success of our project manchaha the designs created by the viewers got seven global awards <laughs> in last seven years so this is a thing where what you've started doing is saying to the weavers okay rather than just weaving the carpet like do you have ideas yourselves about the designs and there was one i saw in a video which was to do with was it called disharmony or something and the idea was that there was some weavers working on this carpet and then they weren't getting along and then you could see like this almost like the story of them being in disagreement with each other on one end of the carpet where yeah. um lots of the bits of weaving were kind of uh not linking up properly and then later on on the carpet you can see that it's all much more harmonious and you kind of see that journey of them from like disharmony to harmony and like that was their design yes um to create that so so again you know using that um storytelling so that the weavers are actually involved in the design um is that so again was that something that just came from like conversations that you were having with them or was that your vision like how did that how did that come about and um, when you first started doing that that there were three three men and uh, when they started their own designs they were not very along with each other but slowly slowly they started communicating with each each other and ultimately ultimately they were working together 
and design were very symmetric. So when we saw the carpet first, that we realized this is not going to sell. This is the biggest mistake which I had never seen before. But when we started telling the story to our customer, <laughs> that it became so famous and also won the award. And now we by inspired this design. We made so many designs from this, from the inspiration, and those are the best-selling designs. Wow, that's cool. And you also have a you, you have a loom in your head office, right? So when people, either weavers or foreign visitors or employees, when they first come into the office, everybody like ties a knot in this loom so that like over a long period of time everybody creates this this one carpet right so how, like how long has that been um uh like going on for this is from last uh, six years okay my daughter kavita she's a designer and she's very creative so she does so many things like that <laughs> mm. And how long will it take to finish? It takes years. <laughs> and it's like part of the story that it will never finish. Like it's it's almost nicer if it, it's like a constantly developing thing, right? Like it, it would be, it, it would feel like sad to get to the end almost. Yes, yes. It will continue. And I want to tell you a very interesting story that one day the textile minister of India Central Textile Minister, yeah. who came to see our business model, and we took her to the loom, and she started weaving, weaving on the loom. Mm. So you've had you've had government dignitaries, you've probably had people from from very many countries, and uh, all kinds of different people all working on this same carpet. Yes, that's cool. Um, let's. Let's talk a little bit more about you and some of the things that drive you. Um, when we spoke a little while ago, you were saying to me that you feel like you have three enemies. Yes. And you were talking about desires that are unsatisfied. Yes. Um, your ego. Yes. And unconsciousness. Yes. And it's something that I wrote down and was really thinking a lot about. And so I'd love to just explore that a bit more so these are um you're talking at the beginning about how early on in your career you realized that it was important for you to do a lot of work on yourself and and reflection on yourself so these three enemies is, is this like a thing that you've discovered more recently or was this something that you discovered this at the start of your career like i'm really interested to know how you how you came across this uh this philosophy or idea? When I started this business 42 years before, the purpose of this business is to know know myself. Mm. In India, the people on the journey of self-realization go to Himalayas, go to ashram, go to temple. Mm -hmm. But I decided that I will not to go to any ashram. I will start business. And due to my karmas, due to my actions, I will know who am I. So I was reading a lot of books, thinking so much. And eight years before, I realized that there is something wrong. I'm doing the same thing again and again. And I realized that I'm in the autopilot mode and I'm driven by my habits. 
I am the slave of my habits. Mm. And then I started to introspect that how I came out of my fixed mindset, my habits. And then I realized that I have got these three enemies. And I also realized that I was driven by unconsciousness. So slowly, slowly, early in the morning, I started introspecting that what I did yesterday, why I did it. And I found that I was a very reactive person. I have got so much negativity. I was driven by unconsciousness, habits. And slowly, slowly, by the practice, I started, I, I was able to see myself, my actions, my own, own thinking. And I found that slowly, slowly, I can see the things. I was able to see the things which I was not able to see before. And I can see a huge change in my personal life and in my business decisions. And I want to tell you one thing, one example, that one day I was sitting in my office and was thinking that I'm not getting the people who are aligned to the values of Jaipur Ag, who are aligned to the purpose of the Jaipur Ag. And a intuition came to my mind and I changed the name of my HR department. And the new name was Search for Divine Soul. The Search for Divine Soul? Yes, yes. Wow. <laughs> so the HR department is still called the Search for Divine Soul? Yes. Yeah. So I called out my HR people and told tell them that from today, we are not going to take the interview of, the, of their experience, of their clothes, of their age. Now... We must find a person with the patient who is on the higher journey of the truth. He's, we must only take the people who are the inner, inner journey. And thank God within the last three years, we have got so many people who is in the journey of enlightenment and the, their work is so excellent. Mm. And I'm sure they are creating a great future. Not only for the Jaipur app, but for the customer, for our viewers, and for the whole country. So you're looking for people when you hire who have this journey towards enlightenment, which I'm guessing part of the way that you would find that is to look for certain values. But I'm just curious, how do you do that in a job interview, like in a, in a recruitment process? Yes. How do you find people that you feel are more enlightened or on that journey? I want to give you one, one example that so many people came and the smart people, they read on our website and they read about Jaipur and they say that we want to work with the society and we want to do the noble cause and we want to help the others. And some spiritual and religious people come comes, and they say that we want to meditate the other 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 people. We want to increase in the consciousness of the other other people. So the one thing which I ask them that tell me about your inner inner journey. I know you are mm. you have a great thinking about doing the good for the society, but. How are you doing good for yourself? And then I can understand the person. Is he's on the journey of truth or not? Hmm. And what's your 
experience in terms of how people find that? So do you think people, do you think there are just people who are much more self-reflective than other people or, or are there particular practical tools or practices like meditation or yoga or something like that, that you think generally lead people more towards um, that kind of self-reflective thinking? I think the biggest thing is that they are very self-reflective. They think about them themselves. And I think it gives them chance to see what they are doing. So they can always avoid themselves from doing the wrong things for the wrong wrong reasons. And all these people, they don't do the things which don't add the add the add the values and they are very highly focused. And they always believe in the deep work. And that makes a difference. Mm. And when you yourself spend a lot of time on your own journey to enlightenment, and you talked before about spending a lot of time in the mornings thinking about yourself and thinking about some of the enemies within yourself and so on. <laughs> like, what does that look like? Are, are you? Do you meditate? Do you just sit quietly? Do you? Do you journal? Like, what does that what does that look like when you're spending that time, or is it just it's in the moments where you're walking or eating or whatever? Like, do you have a particular sort of practice yourself around those kind of things? Yes. What What I realized in last eight eight years that if I want to transform myself, all the spiritual practices is like the stairs, but that is not the destination. Hmm. The destination only comes from the understanding, the understanding about the self. So I try to develop my understanding that what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And I want to give an example at the stage where I am today. I realize that we create a false, false identity into the business, into the society, into the family that I am this, I am this, and I realize for myself, it means nothing. You only create the false identity when you don't know yourself. If you know yourself, you need not to have the outside recognition. Mm. Start understanding yourself and you have a deeper understanding, then you need not to get the praise or any outside recognition. It comes from inside. Yeah. Can we talk really quickly about those three enemies that um, you were telling me about before? So desires, ego, and unconsciousness. Yes, because when this, when I realized these three enemies within me, I found that the what I'm doing, I want money, I want fame, and and why? And I'm in a hurry to get the money and the fame, and it is creating me. It is putting me in the autopilot mode. Mm. And the second thing about the ego, the false image of myself, I'm this, I'm that, I'm a good person, I have this, I have this. So I'm creating my identity on in different ways. And that is a ego. And the other thing is the consciousness that when I start something at that time, I was so blind and unconscious. That at that time, I don't know why I'm doing it. I'm rushing without knowing why. I'm rushing without knowing the destination. So I think when I started taming these three enemies within me, it makes a lot of difference. Yeah. 
how do you detach ego or, or se- how do you separate ego from identity? Because before there, you were talking about the ego of I'm helping people, I'm, I'm compassionate, I'm doing good. And, and these are often in a Western um, viewpoint things that we think about as being detached from ego because we we tend to think of ego in the west as being about selfishness right and uh self-centeredness so how do you kind of recognize which bits of your identity and your sort of definition of you is ego versus how much of it is the real you i think when i started realizing about uh, myself i found that uh, my love to myself is the most important thing and up to up to now i was searching myself outside the outer outer world so what i think that the more you come closer to your yourself then you can see the relationship in the outside world the connection in the outside world actually don't exist the only connection which we can make is with ourselves and uh, i also think that uh, when we starting knowing ourselves the love gratitude start within us and one day start overflowing and when it start overflowing it reaches to the other so it is a natural phenomena it is a very organic and very scientific thing. Mm. And I think there's probably lots of people listening to this who would find it quite hard to have that level of self-compassion. I think, you know, most people that I work with have some kind of, um, you know, very, very common or uh, favorite ways of, of criticizing themselves or beating themselves up or being critical or, negative thinking um you know towards yourself um do you are there some ways that you can suggest for managers leaders to help to instill some of these qualities in other people too so you know what what can you do in the culture of organizations to help people to be more in touch with who they are i think it is a great great question that i have seen the managers and people at the top i found that the most of the people is driven by the inferiority complex and when we come in the inferiority complex we compare ourselves with the other other person and inferiority complex creates fear mm. so we want more and more and more and we see ourselves in the eyes eyes of the others which never can satisfy and this is is now the the classic thing of um the instagram you know comparing all of your own uh worst negative thoughts of of yourself with everybody's idealized versions that you see online of themselves right so it's like even worse because at the time we are driven by the fear and due, due to the fear we we try to collect so many things we want to create the crowd and uh, so 
नेगेटिविटी फ्रस्ट्रेशन डिप्रेशन सो मेनी थिंग स्टार्ट फ्रॉम द फियर um elements of fear and maybe a bit more about how people can address that in themselves overcome that in themselves and just think about it some more i feel like it's something that is quite neglected often yes um yes yes just generally you are you are you are very right that uh, last week i have two three sessions with uh, so many very good colleges in in india and when i talked about this inferiority complex the students become very serious and they send they start sending me the message that it is changing changing their life before they mm. don't know i told them that we live in a world which is not true there are so many things we don't exist but still we still we believe and we try to achieve them and in my whole life i worked with the Edu- educated people and always those people put me upside down instead of developing the understanding they became very manipulative they became very cunning i always say that knowledge is power but knowledge gained without practice develop ego sometimes the practitioners have the skills without having the knowledge so i think due to the education due to so many books they think that i am knowledgeable and to knowing about the light and to knowing the light makes a big difference so the whole world is confused they are knowing about the light and they think this is the real world it is only a knowledge but knowing the light is the real real thing hmm. so i found when is driven by the inferiority complex is totally away from the understanding understanding of his work in the in the business i have found most of the people still in our business they are totally away they don't understand the people in our business they don't understand the processes they don't understand the product and without the understanding they are making some big decisions so actually it is destroying their life and the business and the society so having that knowledge and then not following that up with practice is that what you're saying yes that you there's a lot of people who they develop knowledge either about themselves or about other things and then don't apply that knowledge into practice right so i want to tell you one thing that uh, what i learned in my life that uh, the people who is driven by the mind he only uses his mind the mind always creates the problem we don't exist the mind creates a small problem bigger mm. and the mind creates a big problem so complicated it never can be solved the solution only comes from the heart so if you are not driven by the heart and the heart is if the heart is not going to the hand it means all the time our mind are working because our heart and hands we have closed them so we are creating 
is when we try to solve the problem through the mind, actually we are complicating the problems. Mm-hmm. So again, I suppose the the obvious question for people listening to this is, I'm sure lots of people will be listening to this thinking, yes, I want to, I want to follow my heart more. I want to think about um, how I can solve problems with with the heart rather than the mind, and and definitely relating to this idea that often the mind can complicate things. And I'm sure that feels quite alien to lots of people. So are there some are there some ways that you think people can help themselves to be more heart-based in their in their thinking, in their decisions, um, in their actions? I think that it is a matter of self-awareness. So how we can work on our self-awareness? Because due to unconsciousness, we have a huge blindness around, around us. So I think self-awareness is the answer. I want to give you one example. Then I have seen the people who is meditating from very long time. And when I interact with them, I found that when they med- meditate, they have a different m- meaning. And when they came out of after meditation, they have a different meaning. Meditation means your you must work as the meditation. So your work became your med- meditation. So I think self-awareness is the answer. So you're saying meditation doesn't help because it becomes almost like a job in itself. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm I'm saying that med- meditation is like a is like the stair. It will help you mm, okay. to reach at your at your destination. But meditation with understanding that makes a difference. That when we meditate, how after I came out of the meditation, how awareness I have in my everything I do in the daytime. So I think that should be mixed with the meditation. Okay, so when you come out of the meditation, then you... Because sometimes when I've done meditation and yoga, sometimes you find that then you're just, you're, I don't know, traveling in a car or or just making a cup of tea or something, and you, you feel more aware of those really simple things more after you've after you've recently done something like meditation than you would just if you just got up and started your day and and whatever so do you think that is that part of it is recognizing not just meditation but then also trying trying to be more mindful in each and every moment rather than just saying i'll be mindful during these moments of meditation but then i'll just go on and live the rest of my life and be busy. Perfect. I think this is perfect. That awareness, alertness, before I start anything, how alert I am, how aware I am, that makes the difference. And I think the practicing the awareness, the practicing the alertness, it really makes a big difference whatever we do. Mm. That is the real meaning of meditation. That's fascinating. And um, I just think there's so much um, wisdom. I remember uh, spending some time with you when I came to visit and uh, we were talking about um, so a, a similar theme to what you were talking about towards the beginning of this conversation, actually, around business being 
a very useful tool for self-actualization and, you know, using business as the place to learn about yourself rather than sitting in a, a yoga ashram or, um, uh, you know, traveling the Himalayas or, or, um, some of the other examples that you mentioned. And I remember thinking, I, I just think there's so much, um, so much wisdom here. Obviously you've, you've had a very long, um, very successful career with Jaipur rugs. I just wonder before we finish, cause we're just about out of time. Um, are there any, any particular kind of key philosophies that you have or key, learnings from your career that we've not talked about so far that would just be a, a nice one to kind of end the episode with and you know just in particular thinking about um a, yeah would love to just kind of hear a little bit more about how you uh, how you make yourself successful and what what does productivity uh mean to you in in the work that you do as well should i end by sharing a story when when i was in college one day my business administration professor came to class and asked a roll number and that was roll number but mine and he asked me to stand and he was a very strict professor and I started thinking that why he asked me to stand because I was a very disciplined student and I thought that I have done no mischievousness. Why is asking me to stand? And then he took out a test copy in his hand and so to everyone in the class and told that, see the answer this boy has written. The question was, what is the definition of business? And what I replied is, business is next to love. It is the creator and preserver of civilization. And the prophet <laughs> said, this boy will became a unique businessman one day. that i mean that's just that leaves me with so many more questions about how i just have to ask you before we finish then so how did you why do you think you had that kind of perspective at such a young age because this is when you're in college this is before the business yeah why 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 did you have that kind of that kind of perspective at such a young age do you think i think it is it is very 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 organic but what I remember in my young young days or when I was a child, that I realized that I live in a family, I live in a society where the people are driven, as I told by the greed and desires, and they were doing the wrong things for the wrong reasons and suffering very badly. So I can see it very clearly since my child childhood so i think then i took that maybe i took the different path due to that learning <laughs> mm, that's cool and i know you spent quite a bit of time yourself in in the us and the uk um and very many other places around the world there's often this this sense of um cultural difference between east and west and i wonder if there's anything that you can tell us about how from an, a more Eastern perspective, you view the West and maybe just we'll make this like the final question, but is there anything that you would 
really recommends that people in the West do differently things that perhaps you don't understand or feel like uh, feel like we're getting wrong here in the West. I'd, lo- I'd love to um, just finish with with that as a question. Um, what 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 do you really question when you come to the UK and the US and uh, things that you think that perhaps we should be doing differently here? I think the Western world, there are so many innovation, so many things happen in the in the Western world, but I think they missed one thing, which is them, themselves. What I I feel that if we the love is the only criteria for the sustainability. So hmm. whatever we do, any innovation, anything which we do, love should be the criteria. And that will make the difference. Yeah, I, well, maybe that's just a, a perfect place to finish. I, I'm immediately thinking about all the different ways in which that could manifest itself. But I think that's probably just a, a perfect um, place to finish up. Um, we'll obviously put a link to uh, Jaipur Rugs uh, in the show notes um, here at getbeyondbusy.com. So if you want to check out a bit more about um, some of the some of the other things that Jaipur Rugs is doing, some of that um, initiative around storytelling, we'll we'll put some uh, photos of some of the actual rugs um, on there as well. Um, Mr. Chowdhury, it's, it's just been a huge pleasure having you on this podcast and uh is there anything that you want to particularly draw people's attention to as we finish either ways to connect with you or just other things that you think people should check out and uh, anything else that you want to let us know about before we finish my last thing is that just be yourself (laughs) perfect knowing yourself and then being yourself i think is um is just a really strong message from this podcast so uh thank you for being on beyond busy thank you Wow. I hope you enjoyed that one. I honestly just don't have a lot to say after that, other than um, thanks to Mr. Chowdhury for his time and um, really looking forward to working with him again over the next few months, as I said. Um, If you would like to find out more about the previous episodes, we have the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com. So getbeyondbusy.com. And this episode is sponsored by Think Productive. So if you're interested in productivity workshops and training for your business then just go to thinkproductive.com and you'll find out more there uh, quick reminder again that there are tickets for my six weeks to ninja online course starting in november 2020 come and be locked down with me in the evenings and boost your productivity and uh, we will help each other through this long winter so uh, graham forward slash six weeks and uh, you can find out more there um, i also did a big mail out last week um so i'm do- i'm doing this weekly email list called rev up for the week and if you want to sign up for that just go to graymalcott.com and on any of the pages there there's a little sign up form and rev up for the week is my weekly email where the idea is i put uh, a positive thoughtful thing in your inbox every sunday ready for the week ahead and i really just felt compelled to write last week's one about The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which I just watched. And do you know what was interesting is I had such a strong response of people um, emailing me back and telling me about how they dealt with social media, how they dealt with this addiction to devices and stuff that just 
seems to be getting worse. And the whole thing with the social dilemma is it feels very dystopian, but it also feels like a bit of a moment. It feels like, I don't know, there was a lot of stuff. I'd read Joran Lanier's book and, you know, big fan of his work. And I had thought about a lot of the stuff that was in this documentary. And I actually wasn't going to watch it. It had been kind of recommended on my feed a couple of times on Netflix. And I'd sort of turned it down and thought, yeah, I don't need to watch that. But then when you do, just the way they put the argument across and the way they uh, use this particular narrative device of actors pretending to be the algorithm of what to show you to sort of keep you hooked in, it really made me think, oh my God, there's there's something really serious here that if we're not careful is actually going to just destroy us all. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it was very difficult to write a, a rev up positive piece uh, for my mailing list. I think I did a pretty good job of it, but uh, yeah, it was, it was a difficult one to, to make positive. That's for sure. And what was interesting was just how strong the response was with people just um, emailing me back. So if you did email me back, I'm still working through the replies and I will reply to you. Um, as I always do to people who um, reply to my mailing list emails. Uh, just always, not always the next day after I've received it. Sometimes there's a little backlog. Um, but yeah, so um, if you want to be part of that, we'll we'll actually put that uh, mailing list one up on the blog somewhere, maybe on my Medium or on graymalcott.com somewhere so you can have a read. But um, yeah, sign up to my Rev Up for the Week mailing list, uh, graymalcott.com, and you'll get the future ones. So that is it for this week. Um, thanks to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show, and Podient for hosting. And we'll be back next week with another episode. We're now a weekly podcast. So spread the word, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye for now. <laughs>